Good evening, Redemption Tempe. It is, uh, it is good to be here with you tonight. Welcome to First Wednesday. I've been looking forward to this all summer. We take breaks during the summer and then we relaunch in the fall. And the first Wednesday of June, July, and August are my saddest days of the year. So it is good to be with you here tonight for First Wednesday, our monthly gathering where we address important cultural topics through the lens of the gospel. The question is, why do we do this? Why do we do this? It is, we do this because when you open up the newspaper or when you open up the computer and you read the newspaper on CNN.com or whatever, um, you notice that there are a lot of things, complicated issues going on in the world. There, there are techno there's technology, there's free market economics and free range chickens and genetic engineering and international relations and so many things that when you open up the Bible, you don't find a specific verse about. I've never opened up the Bible and read anything about hipsters or free-range chickens or nuclear weapons or anything like that. But we do believe that all of life is all for Jesus. And therefore, the Bible, God's Word, is a lens through which we can look at any topic and see the beauty and goodness in culture because God is the creator. We can understand the brokenness that we see in the world because of the fall and sin. And we can have hope because of the comprehensive redemption that comes through Christ and the future restoration of all things through him. And that's what tonight is about. We have these nights so we can take difficult topics and we can wrestle together about how to understand them and how to be faithful in the midst of the 21st century. In the past, we've done a number of topics. We've done creativity. We've done politics. We've, we've, we've had a food and faith night. We've done a, a bunch of different topics, and we'll do a bunch more. But tonight, we're talking about power. And before we launch into the night, I have a few details I want to share with you, a few elements of the night that you'll notice. First of all, we have... Um, we have a book table in the back where you can, we have three books for sale, three really good books, Visions of Vocation, because as we talk about power, vocation is one of the most important places where we will be applying some of the, these things that we're talking about tonight. We have another book called Counterfeit Gods about how we can turn idols out of significant things like power. And we have another book that's all about the stewardship and, of power called Playing God by Andy Crouch. It's a really good book. Another thing you'll notice with First Wednesdays is that most First Wednesdays we have free food. So those fajitas are actually probably why you're here. You, didn't, you wanted a free meal, so you're here. But this is actually quite exciting that we have so many people here tonight. Um, what, what should you expect tonight? Well, actually, one, one more thing. I want to point out our water situation here. Last May... We did a first Wednesday on environmental stewardship. And we determined that it was not the best stewardship for us to have water bottles at this event because 300 people using water bottles wasn't the best way to go. So we had a contest to see who could come up with the best idea of how we could handle water at first Wednesdays. And the winner would receive that painting in the back of Psalm 24 1. 
And so we actually have the winner to announce tonight. It's Sean Lynch. Sean Lynch, go ahead and give him a hand. He, he suggested the idea of, of having stations where we can get water, where you can fill up a water bottle if you bring one. We encourage you to do that in the future. But also that we have compostable cups around the tables so that we can actually compost these and turn it into soil. And even something cool you can do with those is you, if you want to start a plant, you can start it in the cup that you're drinking out of tonight. So that was Sean Lynch's idea. Give him a high five if you see him. And, and finally, just to give you a little snapshot of what to expect tonight. During First Wednesdays, we try to have uh, multiple forms of communication. So uh, short talks, interviews, artwork, a number of different things. And we try to keep it moving pretty quickly. So tonight, our, our topic is power. What, the reason why we chose power, our title is Power, Jesus, Hitler, and the iPhone. And some people have accused us of saying, you only named it that because you know it's provocative. There's a little bit of truth to that. <laughs> but I think it's important. The topic, Christians often talk, you know, you hear about sex, money, and power, how they are these good things but also can be incredible vices. Christians have a tendency to talk about sex and money but not power. So that's the conversation we're going to have tonight. And Jesus being the archetype of the good use of power. Hitler being the archetype of evil and abusive power. And a lot of times, good and evil, uh, there can be clear good and evil examples, but most of what we deal with is something like the iPhone. Who has an iPhone in here? All right. Hold it up if you, if you actually have it. We're not going to shame you. The iPhone is incredibly powerful. It shapes so much of our lives. It, you know, it shapes our daily patterns, and, and, and uh, we, we can often be consumed by it. We know that there are good things and bad things that can be involved with the iPhone. It's gray, and we need to really reflect on how we steward power well and how we think about things like technology. So tonight, here's the lineup. First of all, Tyler Johnson's going to come out, and he's going to talk about what is power and the relationship between love and power. Then Will Vikurovich is going to give us a spoken word poem about a homeless person and his experience with power. Ricardo's going to speak on the power of words. I'm going to share about three words that will help us steward power for the common good. And then Katie Parrish and Jenny Mullins will have a, a short interview about how the good use of power has contributed to the flourishing of a five-year-old girl with autism, my daughter. And then we'll close up the night with text-in questions that you'll be able to ask. So with all that said, let me go ahead and pray, and then we'll get started. Father, we thank you that you are the source of all power. You are the source of all goodness. Even in the beginning, when you said, be fruitful and multiply, when you commanded us uh, through your son to love our neighbor as ourself, you were calling us to the good stewardship of power. Help us think deeply. Help us feel in our emotions the importance of this topic. Give us wisdom about how we should apply things. And God, we pray that you would be with us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. 
take a moment around your tables to get to know each other a little bit and ask yourself this, ask each other this question. Who is the most powerful person you've ever met? So go ahead and discuss now. All right. 60 seconds ago, I had a water bottle until Jim made me feel guilty, so I went and got a compost cup, um, so none of you would be out there judging me. The first time I encountered the Bible in a real way for the first time was through this verse, Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, in which the Apostle Paul says this, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I was 17 years old and a baseball player. That was my life. And I read that verse through my experience, like many of us do, and thought, you're telling me Jesus Christ can help me hit a baseball 450 feet. I'm in. I am in. I read that passage through the lens of what it might do for me to that which I thought was most important and that which I thought was going to bring me the utmost happiness in life. I missed it, not entirely, but I missed it. If I would have really known what Paul was saying in Philippians chapter 4 verse 13 about what and who I really was as a human being and what it really meant to be happy things would entirely have changed for me. My perspective would have entirely been different. You were just posed the question, who is the most powerful person you know? This is the most powerful person I know, my three-year-old daughter, Luciana. Before I came here, I was getting ready, and I was in the shower. Don't conjure up any images. It's not good, but neither here nor there. I was in the shower, and I'm singing. And as I'm singing, Luciana comes in, and she goes, Dad, get quiet. Like, you don't want me to sing? You sing all the time. Dad, you can sing, but sing quiet. Then I get out of the shower, I get dressed, and she walks in, and she's in her mom's heels. And as she walks in in her mom's heels, click, 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 and I'm like, why does Haley have heels on? And around the corner comes Luciana. And I said, Lucy, you look beautiful. And she's like, I'm in mom's shoes. I said, yes, you are. And she says, it's like a party in the USA. And I, at that moment, was like, what do you want? Like, not, literally, I'll give you whatever you want. A Starburst salad, do you want it? And the reality is, Lucy can move me and does move me. And we could say it's manipulative if we define manipulative by movement. But if we mean it in the negative term, her statement to me with the eyes, it's like a party in the USA, could be used for substantial good or substantial evil. What would substantial good look like? What it did to my heart at that moment. I felt so good and so right and everything's good in the world. Look at this beautiful girl who just made me laugh hysterically and made me feel that good. And she could have left it at that. Look at what my humor does for dad. Or she could have gone, look at what my humor did to move dad. Now I can get a starburst salad. It's about me. That's what power is. Power in the smallest form of a three-year-old girl saying a party in the USA or Barack Obama's power to determine whether or not there are airstrikes. 
airstrikes in Iraq right now is about the power to move things. If you just typed in to your iPhone right now or verbally said definition of power, here's what's going to come up. The capacity or ability to direct or influence the behavior of others or the course of events. The understanding of power is not complicated. Power is the ability to move. In fuller definition, I'll read it again. The capacity or the ability to direct or influence the behavior of others or the course of events. Power is like the iPhone. It's neutral. It can be used for infinite good or it can be used for infinite evil. Now, our struggle with power isn't in what power is as a truth, as a reality. It's what has been done to power, what would be called, called the abuse of power. Let me read to you three quotes. Here's the first one. If you tell a big enough lie and tell it frequently enough, it will be believed. If you tell a big enough lie and you tell it frequently enough, it will be believed. Quote number two, if you win, you need not have to explain. If you lose, you should not be there to explain. Let me read that one again. If you win, you need not have to explain. If you lose, you should not be there to explain. Last quote, it's not truth. It's not truth that matters, but victory. It's not truth that matters, but victory. All three quotes said by Hitler in his autobiography. Now, one of the most powerful men who's ever, ever lived. The easiest person who's ever lived to say he's evil. The reality of those sentiments and statements that I just read take place in restaurants, businesses, education environments, and our own hearts every single day. So let's not cast out Hitler too soon. Let's remember the way Jesus did things. Oh, you know it's wrong to commit murder, but I tell you, if you hate somebody in your heart, you've committed murder already. And as you watch the teaching of Jesus on love, this is what it looks like. With Jesus, there's no mushy middle. If you look at Jesus' teaching, it's very clear. You love or you hate. There is no mushy middle. You love or you hate. There is no mushy middle. We abuse power. We move people for sordid gain, is how the Bible says it. Or selfish gain is what that means, sordid gain. We use power, our ability to move people individually and collectively for the wrong reasons, for selfish gain all the time. And the reason in which we would use it for selfish gain, we would abuse power, comes from two things. One, not recognizing where power comes from. And number two, not understanding what humanity really is and where human happiness really comes from. That could be three. Not understanding where power comes from, not understanding what humanity really is, not understanding where human happiness really comes from. 
There's this benediction, if you will, added to the Lord's Prayer by many people. The Lord's Prayer is the our Father. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us of our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then this is added. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. So based upon that benediction, whose is the power? God's. An abuse of power first comes from a misunderstanding of who is the author, the provider, and the perfecter of power. There's a passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, that says this. I love this passage. For who sees anything different in you? Other versions say, what's different about you? What do you have that you didn't receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast as though you didn't receive it? The reality is, folks, we all have power capacity in here. And you didn't generate it yourself. For his is the power. Anything you've been given, anything you have, you've been given. What do you have that you didn't receive? Well, I worked really, really hard. You don't even know how much I worked it. Well, who gave you the intelligence to work that hard? Who taught you the work ethic? If you were in a lazy home, would you have that work ethic? Who gave you the intelligence that you have? Who gave you the able body that you have? Who gave you the opportunity to have the experiences that you have? They have been provided for you. Therefore, don't boast as, they're, as though they are fundamentally about you for his is the power we must recognize that for us to rightly understand and rightly use power the second thing is a misunderstanding of what and who human beings really are at their core i'm going to say this succinctly and directly at their core human beings are creatures made by a creator who is himself a giver in the very character and nature of God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is in his very nature a, give, a giver, a self-giver at cost to himself. He's giving glory away inside of himself as a community all the time. Therefore, human beings are made to be givers. Human beings are made for their eyes to look outward, not to look at their navels. Human beings are not made to say it's all about me. That's the distortion of sin. Human beings are made to say it's all about you. So therefore what God gives us is meant to be routed through the reality of what it means to be human. How do I then give it for the benefit of you? That would answer the question, how do human beings become fully happy? One of the most provocative quotes I've ever read is by Blaise Pascal about happiness, and in it he says this, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action, of every man, even of those who hang themselves.
Now, many people who might go to war and or hang themselves misinterpret and misunderstand happiness as I'm not finding it in myself. And I believe we'd be free dramatically if we understood our good is built up in the good of our neighbor. We will use everything we have to seek their goodness, their welfare, and in their welfare, we too will find it. So here's the final question. What if you have very little power, very little resources, or what if you have a ton? Does it change how we should view and how we should use power? Jeremiah chapter 29 is the place where the people of God have no power. They've been exiled out of their homeland. They've been brought into Babylon, this place that hates them. And now God is giving them direction in how to live in a foreign land as a powerless, seemingly, seemingly powerless people. Here's his exhortation to them. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce. What's he saying? Get dirty and build power. Power, on one hand, comes from settling down, getting into all of it, and you build power. You have produce for yourself. You're not dependent upon somebody else. You have produce now that you can sell. You can leverage a property that you now live in. Build power here. Settle down here. Plant gardens. Eat their produce. Take wives. Have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. Marriage brings power. And give your daughters in marriage. Next slide. Good thing I have my Bible. In marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there, gain power through having children, and do not decrease. And then here's what he says, but let me tell you about power. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. Now here's the key phrase, for in its welfare, these are people who have robbed them from their homelands and brought them there, and God says, settle down in this place that the vast majority of you hate. Build power there. And in building your power, what do you do with, to do with it? Seek the welfare of these people who kidnapped you. Seek the welfare of these people who pillaged your city. Seek the welfare of them because in their welfare, you too will find yours. Folks, that's unbelievable. That's the nature of power usage for happiness. In their welfare, you too will find yours. Well, what about... If you have unbelievable amounts of power, that was spoken to people who perceived they were powerless. He's saying, let me see how you can build it for the good of the place I've sent you. Who has the most power of all? We've already determined this. Somebody just say it. God, right? Look at Philippians chapter 2. Jesus himself. Hitler, Jesus, the iPhone. How does Jesus reorient this? So if there's any encouragement in Christ... Any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. Do nothing for yourself, is what he's saying. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, 
but also to the interests of others. Interest, interesting, because he's going to say your interest, your welfare is bound up in theirs, not only to his own interest, but also the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now listen to what he says. Jesus, who was God, who in the very form of God did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself, made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, now watch what happens. He says, in their welfare, I will sacrifice myself for their welfare. And he goes down, look at the arena, he humbles himself and goes down, and look what God does. Those who humble themselves, the Bible say, will be exalted. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess in heaven and on earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Redemption Church and all who are in here, if that's the facts and we are all gonna bow our knees to the Lord, we must understand the Lord we bow our knees to is a servant to the core and is more joyful, more complete, more satisfied, and more influential than anybody because and only because he uses his power to serve. Thanks. Thanks. My name is Will Vukurvich. Um, I, I run a homeless shelter in, in Tempe called East Valley Men's Center, and Jim asked me to do a poem for you guys tonight uh, about the abuse of power. So I'd like to introduce you to one of the guys that I've met at the shelter through this poem and tell his story. He is, he is a person who does not have much power, as you will see, and his daily flourishing depends on how those around him um, use their power. <clears throat> his name is Lucas. Thick glasses, sweaty shirts, requiring constant suggestions to shower. He smells like a man who needs compassion. His name is Lucas. Lucas is not a homeless person. He is a person experiencing homelessness. Those who rest safely under the banner of house rarely notice this nuance. His experience dates back to childhood when chubby fingers strain high to reach park restroom faucets to clean up. Water, always too hot in the summer and too cold in the winter, and he still hates washing. Worse were those nights when he and siblings waited patiently on benches for mother's release or the dawn. It turns out parks are not seen as fun when slides resemble shelter. His name is Lucas. He speaks simply. His 24 years of delayed development make things like eloquence or explanation an absurdity. She was mean to me, he confesses of his mother. Simple sentence spoken from behind, forehead buried in palms. As tears baptize my office floor, he tells of mean-hearted names and slaps and shame and hungry weekends, eagerly awaiting subsidized school meals and locked closet doors, always too dark, never enough space for a boy to be, always wishing for release, those long days of longing for public park restrooms so that pants and self-image might remain unsoiled. His name is Lucas. 
His heart, easily given to strangers who offer friendship, often leaves him wondering where his money went. He leaves joy where he walks. His eyes smile when he talks. He shares his video games with those who look sad because that is what makes him feel better. His name is Lucas. Most days, he will not leave the shelter. Fearful that the reoccurring dreams will take on flesh, that cars will hit him while pedaling his bike, or he will be sent to a group home or arrested, or any of the other threats that his family used to cash his social security check. His family replaced his name with profanity, spent his dead father's inheritance, and labeled Lucas irresponsible, renamed troublemaker, deemed good for nothing. The system offers solutions to the Lucases of our day often resembling long lines at government agencies and monthly allowances sent to cast aside those needing care and blind and numb the rest of us from the forgotten humanity of names. Names replaced with recipient numbers. His name is Lucas. What good is a form to fill out if he cannot read or write? It's hard to remember the letters, he tells me, but he remembers CPS and caseworkers and new places to stay, and evictions, and pills so that he can act good, and scary nights of screams and thuds, and rooms down dark hallways, and mom's arrests, and new caseworkers, and evictions, and too many houses to count, and repossessed cars, days without meals, and evictions, and caseworkers, and fear, and confusion, and more overworked caseworkers that too easily forget his name is Lucas. And my heart breaks, not the way it should be, but sometimes New family is found in the least likely of places. Familiar faces form bonds even in a homeless shelter. He bought me a magnet for Father's Day. Fits perfectly on my file cabinet. It reads, Arizona, it's a dry heat. (laughs) Lucas reads it to me daily, voice proud of our shared treasure. Arizona, hot is dry, close enough. We often giggle over the confused punch lines and we offer advice or rides or laundry money or solutions, but... He prefers our time, our attention. His mind feels safe in the perceived power of our shelter's protection. His presence reminds us daily that power must be wielded wisely when walking with the least of these. His name is Lucas. Thank you. Hey, first I want to talk about, uh, start off talking about power, um, to see how power structures work. Before I talk about the power of words, uh, Tyler was given 25 minutes, and they gave me eight. (laughs) Which is fitting, because I'm talking about the power of words, and there's probably not a person in this room that talks more than me. So, we'll begin. Um, when I was given the topic, the, the, uh, the topic of the power of words, I wanted to give a title to this. And the title of this is Sticks and Stones May Break My Bones and Words Will Never Hurt Me and Other Lies That We've Been Told. Because the reality of it is words are powerful. And because words are powerful in a world in which we live in, words are very hurtful because they're powerful. And as Tyler has already mentioned, that power in itself could be yielded for good or it could be yielded for bad. Power in itself is influential. It's shaping. It can make things become something great, and something that would have been great become something very unknown. That power in itself, given in the wrong person's hand because of a broken heart, can hurt, could damage. But that's not the way it's always been. Unfortunately, not the way it always would be. 
We see in the very inception of time that when time itself was created, the one who was above time created by speaking things to existence. God himself spoke this world into existence because words have power. When God said, let there be, and it was, God said, let's do this, and it happened. And then God spoke again. And at the very apex of his creation, he says, let us make man in our own image, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit within community with one another, and bearing the image of God, we, people who are creating his image, have attributes that we can share with God. We can love and be loved. We can know and be known. We can also speak. And so when God created Adam, he gave Adam the ability to share that power. God is able to redistribute power to people in the right places. And in this case, When the world was was as it should be, Adam was able to use his power and his influence. And one of the first things that Adam did, he was able to name the animals. God says, I created the animals. How about you name them? And he looked and he says, definitely a kangaroo. (laughs) Definitely a porcupine. Looks just like a porcupine. Adam did that. Adam used his words to be able to help society. And then one of the best things that he did is when God said something else, God says, it's not good for this man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And so God created woman, and when Adam woke up and he saw the woman, he said, whoa, right? And then he sang a song, and the song that he wrote, first R&B song, he said, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman. Since then, no woman has ever wanted to be called woman. (laughs) But it was fitting at the time. It was good. Everything was good. Everything that God spoke in his powerful words was good. However, manipulation came in, and deceit came in, destruction came in. The serpent began to speak, and for the first time, the man and the woman began to hear something other than God's voice, other than the very powerful of something powerful and creative and the medium of God's spoken word that you had evil just creeping around and begin to lure the woman, entice the woman. And then we see the first sin of omission. That's when you don't speak, when you should speak. And Adam stands next to his wife as his wife begins to eat the fruit of which God says in his powerful, creative, protective words, you shall not. And Adam, in sins of omission, the very beginning of injustice, when you don't speak, when you have the power and the privilege and the opportunity to speak, he sits. And then chaos enters into our world because he does not speak. He does not protect. He does not use his words. And the next words we hear is our God looking for them. Where are you? And then man and woman begin to blame. For the first time, they begin to point the finger. They, know, they begin to look after number one things that we're all familiar with, for the first time from their lack of words, that we now have the ability to use words for good or evil. It used to be for good and for the flourishing of society. Now there's both. And then we with broken hearts, our words are powerful. And there's not a man or a woman in this room who has not gossiped or been gossiped about, who has not slandered, who has not said things in rage that they wish they can get back. The Bible is very clear. It says where words are many, sin is inevitable. It says the average woman speaks 20,000 words a day and the average man 7,000 words a day. And so Jim and I thought, I speak (laughs) 27,000 words a day. (laughs) 
And where words are many, sin is inevitable, meaning our words, they're powerful. Think about this. Every single one of us can look back into a memory and think about a positive or a negative memory of which someone's word has helped us or hurt us. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And other lies we believed. Like our words don't matter because they do. Like your words about me don't matter. They matter. My words about you, they matter. We can put on spiritual figurative fig leaves to kind of cover ourselves up, but the insecurity is loud because words matter. What you think about me and what you say about me matters. It matters. I want to give you two stories of how words can shape for good or ill. When I was 11 years old, um, my dad was not as connected to me as I wish he would have been. My mom did everything that she could to raise me. The only thing that I had that I was somewhat good at was sports. But I did it because my friends did it. When I was 11 years old, there was a guy, my best friend's dad, his name was Mark Tolan. Mark Tolan came to me after a football game and said, he said these words, I'll never forget him. You're a special kid, you're a special athlete, you should stick to football, it's going to take you somewhere. No one had ever validated me in anything before. No one said, you're a special math student. You're good at social studies. You can spell. You can run. Do that. That's what I heard. And so I did it. I mean, it's something as simple as an adult who I looked up to validated me. And so I took this sport. This was a particular medium that God gave me to launch me into opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. And eventually, the same sport that would lead me here, that God would introduce this great love into my life. It really did change my life. I didn't care about football. I cared about this man's word and what he said about me. It mattered. Another story is the story of my friend Andy. Andy and I were the best of friends. You couldn't get anybody closer to me and Andy. By the time we got into ninth grade, Andy himself wrestled with his race because he was half white and he was half Mexican. Being half white and half Mexican at our school was hard in the sense because there was a big divide between whites and Mexicans. Being African American didn't matter. We were 5% almost everywhere we went, so fine. I remember the day, first week of school, Andy came to me and said, here, I got a problem. He goes, all of the crew over here, which was a big population of a Latino population, and particularly three guys, not this whole population, these three guys said, you are not brown enough. And he had this in his mind. He goes, they say I'm not brown enough, and so I know if I hang out with them, I won't get picked on by them. But if I hang out with you guys, I will get picked on them. If I hang out with them, you guys won't say these things about me. So what I will do is hang out with them. And then me, speechless, said, hey, you're right. We're always going to love you. Andy grew up in a great family, had a great upbringing, great everything. He went with these three particular guys. Within six months, he was kicked out of school. Within a year, he was arrested. Within another year, he was back in juvenile. And his life spiraled down because one person, he believed the lie that he wasn't, quote, unquote, brown enough. And you're not skinny enough, and you're not tall enough, and you're not fast enough. Words matter. They matter. Let's, let's get a little bit more deeper. Jesus says that all of our words matter. In fact, here's what he says in Matthew chapter 12. He says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak, or they text, or they type right? Let me paint this picture for you. We all know that weird experience, that awkward experience when someone's playing back our own voice, right? And you hear your voice, turn it off, because you don't like hearing yourself. 
Imagine the day when God says, I got the manuscript and the voice recording of every single thing that you've ever said. Sit down. It's going to take a while. And you're going to have to give an account for that. And everybody in this room is going to be laid bare. Yeah, there's good, but there's also evil. Thoughts included. But I want to go back to Adam because I think Adam points us to the power of words in which we can have hope. Because after Adam sinned against God and after Adam did not use his words, God began to speak again. And though God did pronounce curses, God spoke and he gave a hint of a day in which the word, the power of the word, which become flesh. That in Genesis 3.15, he gave a hint of the day in which the word which become flesh and that there would be life. And though Adam and Eve brought death, Adam spoke again. And when he spoke again, he named his wife and he named his wife Eve, which means giver of life. Because there was hope that he knew and him not speaking and him not stewarding this gift of words that brought destruction that there would be hope. And as we see through the pages, though we will have to give an account of our words and we know that we all will stand guilty because we did not steward this power that God has given us with our tongue. We were more like what James says, and we're like a forest fire. We cannot tame it. But the word did become flesh. God didn't just speak the world into existence. He stepped into the world to have flesh for this very reason, that grace changes things. That the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us and literally had its skin ripped open that its blood would be shed so that this, though we all stand guilty for not stewarding the power of our own words, that there's one who speaks a better word. And this is what the author of Hebrews says about Jesus. And to Jesus, who's a mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkle of blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. If you remember, Cain and Abel were the children of Adam and Eve. And Cain killed Abel, and Cain's blood screamed out for the cursing of his brother. Well, now Jesus, the word became flesh, the kingdom of God that doesn't exist in talk but in power that is embodied in Jesus, that Jesus' blood says does not scream out our curse, but it screams out for our acquittal, for our grace, so that we now, under God's love, under God's grace, could now take this gift of words and use it not for evil or destruction, but to speak into someone's life that they may have life. Amen? Here's what we're going to do as we close. As Jim has asked me to say, since we speak so many words, let's take one minute of silence. One minute of silence to yourself before God and in this room.
So Ricardo has spoken about the weight and the significance of words. And so in my talk, I want to give you three powerful words that will help you effectively steward power wealth. This is where we're going to get a little practical. Three words that you can embrace that will, if you remember these and employ these, you can steward power well. What are those three words? Intentionality, patience, and dirt. Intentionality, patience, and dirt. We often like to get caught up in ideas of self-grandeur where we put some effort in one day and then we just change the world, where we turn the TV off and we go outside when we finally decide to change the world and we make a little speech, we start a little business, we start a nonprofit, and we defeat ISIS. We eradicate all water problems in the world with about three hours worth of work or a short initiative for three months. We have visions of grandeur, but that's not the way the world works. The way the world works, the way power works, is by taking seriously these three words, intentionality. Think about all of the gifts that God has given you, time, money, ability, skills, and take the time to be intentional with the employment of those things. Patience. It's very easy to have short-term thinking. It's been said that we overestimate what we can do in a year, but we underestimate what we can do in 10 years or 20 years, but to patiently work toward the same thing. And finally, dirt. Are you willing to get your hands dirty? Are you willing to work? Are you willing to actually put in the work over a long period of time in a very intentional way to see something happen? If I had in my hands the seeds from my favorite plant, which is the dill plant. Uh, you wouldn't think much of it. But I, I love gardening. I grow dill like crazy. I love dill. What's amazing about dill is that dill will produce about $20 worth of the herb dill from one plant each season. Pretty good, right? But here's where it's significant. At the end of the season, it will give you thousands and thousands of seeds Hands full of seeds. And within each of those seeds, there is either the potential to lay dormant or to be intentional, to cultivate the ground, to work the ground, to care for it, to be patient, to take time, and to literally put your hands in the dirt and do some work. And if you do so, there are thousands and thousands of dollars worth of dill in each each seed over time. And I tell you what, when I look around this room, you want to know what I see? I see a bunch of dill weeds. <laughs> I, see, I see a bunch of people with that same potential that if we would be intentional, patient, and get dirty, that we could actually wield power for the common good. Now, I know that you are sitting in here saying, I don't have much power. Yeah, right. Now, I somewhat agree with you if you're talking about the power to make things change immediately over a week or a month or a year. But let's think about long term. Let's think about 20 years down the road. I want to give you a snapshot at the power we have as individuals. First of all, financial power. Go ahead and throw it up there. 
Over the next 20 years, if you are an average Tempe resident, you will make about a million dollars. You say only millionaires have power. Well, you're a millionaire. It just comes in increments. <laughs> Go to the next slide. What about time? Over the next 20 years, you have 175,000 hours that you got to figure out what to do with. You think you can do something in 175,000 hours? Let's go to the next slide. And finally, words. Ricardo talked about words. Over the next 20 years, the average person, and this is a low estimate, will speak 51 billion words, 51 million words. Ricardo will do 51 billion. Most of us will do 51 million words. That's a lot. That is a lot of power over a long period of time that you got to be intentional with, you got to be patient with, and you got to get dirty with. But we are not just individuals. We are a part of a community. So take, for example, Redemption Church as a whole. We have six congregations in the valley here and one in Tucson and one in Flagstaff and roughly 6,500 people. Let's talk about the power of all of those folks over 20 years. How much money would that be? $6.5 billion of income we will generate in the next 20 years as a congregation. You're certainly not going to give that much, we know. But <laughs> $6.5 billion of income, of monetary power that is going to be in the hands of the people of this church. That is more than the annual GDP of countries like Kyrgyzstan and about 20 other countries. What about time? For time, as a congregation, with all of the folks in redemption, we have 438 million hours that we get to steward. And words, excluding Ricardo from this, we have 331 billion words that we're going to speak. If what Ricardo said is true about the power of words, we have some serious power that needs to be stewarded well, that can harm people or build people up. And so, with all of these things, what does Jesus say? All of these things, where, where is that power going? It's being directed towards us. We are going to use most of this to serve ourselves, to love ourselves, to care for ourselves. But Jesus gives the master strategy of love and power when he says, love your neighbor as yourself. Take the words that you use to promote yourself. Take the money that you use to buy your stuff. Take the time that you use to serve yourself and take some of it and look outward and how you can love your neighbor with it. And it won't be effective if you bounce from cause to cause to cause. But if you are intentional over a long period of time and patient and willing to get your hands dirty, then maybe God can take our bread and fish and multiply it and do something significant with it. And so now I want to ask you, how are you going to get your hands dirty? So we've, we have a moment here where we have something on your table that's called a power audit. It's something that you can read through and reflect on, answer some questions about the type of power you have, skills, abilities, people you know, and be intentional about how you're going to wield that to love others. So go ahead and take a few moments now and uh, reflect on that, think about it to yourself. And one more act of power I'm going to do here. If you have a Honda Civic with the license plate 
R-N-2-D-R. Pretend like you're going to get something to drink, but then please move your car. It's blocking a gate. All right. Well, you guys can finish those later as well, but we're going to continue on. So we've heard a lot tonight about power, and it's all been very um, theological and very big. So now we actually want to break it down a little bit and talk about something a little more specific. And so I'm here with my dear friend, Jenny Mullins, and we're going to actually talk with Jenny about her daughter, Eliana, and her diagnosis with autism and how power has played a role in their lives, uh, specifically with Eliana. So if Jenny, if you want to open a, us up just talking about Eliana, um, tell us about her and tell her the, us the background of her diagnosis. Sure. So probably most of you have heard Jim talk about Eliana in one form or another in a sermon. But um, Eliana is our daughter who is five years old, and she uh, was diagnosed at the age of three with autism. And um, one thing that has been really unique about her diagnosis and the way her brain works is that um, she sees the world so differently than you and I do. She um, is able to just think outside the box, and um, she has this deep love for nature and for animals. Uh, I think there was a couple pictures. I don't know if you guys want to put them up there. Um, but she is really just a delight to us and to everyone that um, she interacts with, and so we're so thankful for her. Um, to kind of back up a little bit, when she was around two, we noticed that her language and just her communication was kind of behind where other kids her age were, and so it was just something that was kind of on our minds, and we kind of pursued that with a pediatrician and different people, and everyone kind of told us, um, just let's just wait and see, and she'll probably kind of outgrow that or catch up, and um, you know, as time progressed, we just felt like there was something different about her that we wanted to pursue further. And so um, it was actually her preschool teacher that uh, recommended that we take her to be evaluated by a pediatric, um, a developmental pediatrician. And so she was diagnosed at the age of three with autism. Um, and in a way, it was a relief for us to know that that's what it was and that we could do something about it. We could start early intervention. So that's what we did. We um, started probably about 25 or 30 hours a week of intensive early intervention um, and have been doing that for the past two years and have seen huge growth in her. So it's been fun to see how, um, how that's really worked out for her. So Jenny, give us an example of somebody who has used his or her abilities specifically in helping Eliana. You know, it's interesting. I was counting up um, the other day how many people and doctors and teachers and therapists that we've worked with, and I think it's it was over 100 when I stopped counting. So really there's been so many people in our lives that have um, been interacting with her. But one person that sticks out the most is um, a woman named Dr. Jean Brown, who's a professor at ASU at the preschool that Eliana attends. And she um, is a professor of speech and language pathology. And she's worked with kids for about 25 years. And she just um, has a ton of knowledge in um, speech and language disorders, and she's been able to really um, give us tools and things that we need to help Eliana communicate and um, just really engage with her and have interactions with her, and so um, she's really used her gifts in that to be able to, to benefit us. That's really great, and thank you to Dr. Brown and all she's done for Eliana. So maybe tell us about resources. Maybe it's time, 
talents, money, knowledge, um, how those have been used in helping Eliana flourish. Um, yeah, so when, when we first found out her diagnosis, we were connected with an organization called SARC. Oh, there she is. <laughs> um, SARC is Southwest Autism Research and Resource Center, as well as another organization called um, Arizona Autism United. And those two organizations have really served us and our family in connecting us to resources, um, providing parent training and therapists that work with her. So um, on a broader scale, I see those organizations as really um, giving us power and tools that we need. Um, and then on a smaller, not a smaller scale, but on a personal level, um, Jen Jones, who is here, uh, who kind of heads up the special needs ministry and has done such an amazing job of really equipping volunteers and giving a place for kids like our daughter as well as other kids, um, just a place to learn about Jesus and worship him and um, give them kind of the support and safety that they need to be able to do that. So that's a huge blessing to us. So we're really thankful for her. That's really fantastic to hear how money and donations and education and talents have all been used. So we might have thought about that, institutions and education, but just tell us on a personal level, how have friendships and relationships been impactful to you and your family? Um, yeah, it's interesting having friendships when you have a child with special needs is a little bit different because there's days where she might just have a total meltdown when we're at a play date or um, just things are a little bit harder. And so we really value the people that make an effort to spend time with us and really um, engage her where she's at and her development level. And so um, people like you and your husband and your family um, and your girls that have played with her and um, people like uh, the Clances, that, uh, Brent and Sari, who have really um, just loved on her and their boys draw little pictures for her and just really make her feel special. Um, I think two of um, the Jensen family, specifically Zoe Jensen, their daughter, who Eliana gets to have a play date uh, once a week with her so she can just learn how to um, play and socialize. And um, so Zoe's been a great teacher for her. Um, and then I think two of grandparents and family members that have just really accepted our daughter for who she is, not who they hoped she would be, but really for who God made her to be um, and other family members. So we're, we're really thankful for those relationships that have um, benefited our daughter as well as us. So the power of a child's picture being given to a friend is really a beautiful picture of how we are to be wise stewards of the abilities that God has given us wherever and whatever age we are at. So will you guys join me in just thanking Jenny for um, her... So now around the tables, uh, let's just take one more time to discuss, and I want you all to discuss um, an area of the world's brokenness that burdens you the most. And we'll be back up here in a minute. All right, well, let's go ahead with the question and answer session, and we have our panel up here. The directions for the questions are up on the screen, and listen closely, because it's very specific. So you need to text to that number, all of life, confirm with a Y, and then text your question, all of life first, and then your question. So that's two all of life you have to text. Got it? Okay. Let's go ahead and get started with, um, are there any questions in? 
what is the difference between communal power compared to individual power? Tyler? Well, I think the nature of um, the question and the way you guys are going to interpret much of tonight is through an individual lens outside of when Jim had the moment to say, look at all the money Redemption Church will have, all the words that we have, all of that power. We'll think about it through an individual lens. And so my illustration on my daughter Luciana is the reality of you all have power like that every day through your words, but also through what you do, uh, the profession that you have of the job that you have. You have a decision simply through words to make a difference in somebody's life. And or if you're overseeing certain people, the way you manage them, the way you empower them, I am, is give power to them. Um, the way you have an opportunity to establish happiness on the job by giving them substantial responsibilities to take ownership of and giving them the credit where the credit's due. You have all those types of opportunities. But what I want to spend the majority of my time on in answering this question is communal power, because I think we have not scratched the surface of what communal power really is. So any great movement in history, uh, you guys hear these terms and sometimes people scoff at them like Barack Obama said he was a community organizer and all the conservatives laugh, right? But the reality of what community organizing is, is it's the building of power, typically in that language, for the purpose of addressing a justice issue is that things change all the time because one, for two reasons, people in power at the top begin to leverage their influence and power on, for the sake of the least of these. What the, soon in, in Romans chapter 12, there'll be this verse that says, associate with the lowly. So it's people at the top deciding to use their power to go down. And then the masses, so not just the grass tops, but the grass roots, building a large enough voice to say, you will listen to us. And this is where I, I'll end with this. If we as a church and as Christians are not associating with the lowly in all of that means, doing what Ricardo said, being quick to listen and slow to speak, I am convinced of this to the core and it bubbles within me. We will never live out the commands Jesus has given us to love our neighbors as ourselves. Loving your neighbor as yourself is not just... It's not just a kind word. It's not less than that, and the power of words is substantial, but it's getting dirty to the point of this may cost me everything. It may cost me friendships. It may cost me my job because where something's dark, we're going to call it dark, and we're going to try to expose things in to the light. And so that statement of dirt that Jim used, I just want to say from my position of power in Redemption Church as the lead pastor, if we don't do this, I can't sleep at night. Like, honestly, I cannot sleep at night. When I think about 16,000 orphans in the foster care system in Arizona, if we aren't seeking to put a dent in that by sacrificing ourselves and getting after it, if we aren't willing to acknowledge things like we've talked about before in here, like privilege majority cultures have, white privilege, if we're not willing to acknowledge those things, recognize power that we've been given for the purpose of serving at cost to ourselves, we're not being Christians. All right, next question. What are some good examples of people who stewarded power well? Ricardo? Some good example of people who steward. 
I don't want to say this just because it's the Christian thing to say, but Jesus did. So the reality of it is, when you, have, when you see Jesus, so what is Jesus constantly doing? I'll say, so like, the picture of Jesus, first and foremost, is that he takes a position with the lowly, and he washes feet. And the significance of that is, people like Jesus, a rabbi, a teacher, does not wash feet. You had people for that. And that's why Peter says, whoa, whoa, you can't wash my feet, because he has an, a hierarchical society. You can't do that. And Jesus says, you don't understand. Like, in order to lead, you have to wash feet. You have to be a servant. Jesus says in Mark 10, 45, that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to, uh, to serve and to give himself. And then after the resurrection, Jesus says this, all authority or power or influence, you can use those words interchangeable in this sense, has been given to me. And then he says, go and make disciples, meaning here's the power that I have in this world and redeeming this world. And that power through the gospel is now in every single person who has faith in Jesus to go about and do likewise. Um, he also says this in John chapter 20, verse 21, as the Father has sent me, so I now send you. And he breathes the Spirit upon them. And so he does empower us, E-M. I think you said I-M earlier. <laughs> but anyways, um, <laughs> he does empower, empower us to be able to do that. So Jesus is a good example. If you want to think about someone in our culture that I feel like did a good job at stewarding power, um, the easy thing that comes to me is Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. was able to take advantage of certain situations um, and use his influence in the African-American community, his ability to communicate, um, his brain, um, and his, his, obviously his intellect to be able to, to, to use it in such a way to empower people and steward it for the greater good of not just African-Americans, but an entire country. And some would say the even entire in the, in the world. He's one of the most influential people um, and that was part of his Judeo-Christian belief of how people ought to live. And there's, there's non-Christians who are able to do this, too, because we are created in the image of God. So um, I, I would say Jesus, Martin Luther King Jr., um, and I would say this not just because he's on this, but this guy right here, Tyler, if, if those of you who have ever been close to Tyler um, and people who have been close to Tyler— this guy is in more rooms with more, quote-unquote, influential people, and his character and his demeanor does not change if he's meeting with an intern here at Redemption Tempe. And I believe I have received it where Tyler has given over authority and power when he could himself do the job better in order to empower myself personally and countless of other men and women in our, in our, um, in our church, in our city, um, in our community. And so I, I would say Jesus, Martin Luther King Jr., <laughs> and Tyler Johnson. <laughs> and, you know, to, to add a few things to that, I want to just um, underscore what Ricardo said, and I want to also extend it down the, the, the chair to Ricardo as well. Um, I think it starts with, with Tyler that he has set a culture within redemption to where the highest aim and the things that are celebrated are to, to serve and to give away power. And uh, one thing I know is that if we're not with people who are hurting, if we're just teaching classes, if we're just uh, trying to sound smart, if we're not praying for people in need, then that goes against the grain of what everything that redemption's about. That's a, a culture that Tyler has set, Ricardo set, and the ability to be accountable uh, for the words that they say 
and for living a life of a normal person, not being a celebrity uh, pastor and those sorts of things. So um, that is a culture that shouldn't that that should go to every nook and cranny of what we're about at Redemption Church. The win is to serve and to love and to give away power for the flourishing of, of others, especially where people aren't looking and what they don't see. An example of something that I think is very significant is through your vocations. Be intentional with your vocations. I don't know the full details of everything, but I know that there's a guy who had a, in, in Pittsburgh who has some background in banking, and he saw that one of the most oppressive systems in his community was the checks cashed place, where, where people would come and they would need money pretty desperately and they would give their, their, their checks and, and sign over the title to their cars and other things like that with crazy amounts of interest. And it would guarantee people would stay in poverty. And he used his banking knowledge to start a nonprofit uh, micro-loan company uh, essentially, that people would have to go through financial counseling to get one of these loans, and but it would be a 0% interest loan, and almost all of the loans get paid back, and they help pull people out of poverty and to thrive rather than to push them and force them into it. So think about your vocations when you think about the stewardship of power. That's good. That's excellent. Thank you. How does privilege, such as education, income, majority race, etc., play into our stewardship of power? Ricardo, you want Man, to take no, that? No, 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 no. I, I think all three of us would love to talk about this, but I'd, I'm just going to go punt to Jim. Jim. Um, can you read it for me? I've bet, got bad vision. And Yes. How does privilege... <laughs> I have the power of vision with these glasses. Yeah. How does privilege, such as education, income, majority race, etc., play into our stewardship of power? I think it's substantial, and I'm not going to give a complete answer. Um, because I think I do want all of us to chime in. I'm going to give the perspective of someone who doesn't have a ton of status. So many of you may know this, but I received my GED from the finest public library in all of of Arizona, the Chandler Public Library. Um, I may be the least educated person in this room right now, including the children that are in this room. (laughs) Um, and, and that was, there were a number of things behind that. Many of them were my own foolish decisions. A lot of them were in the, the, the lack of uh, just some of the circumstances of my life that contributed to that. But as you notice, I'm a pastor at the church. I'm sitting here. We're talking, talking to you. Um, and what has to happen in order for those who don't have privilege and those who don't have status to be able to be empowered and to fully employ their gifts to serve others is that there are that people with privilege and, and, and power have to open doors and have to have to welcome them in and even sometimes not just welcome them in but stand in the way of some of the shots that might be coming their way. So uh, that has happened to me on a number of levels. If you have power and privilege, that's how you're to use it. If you don't, um, and, and you've, you've come, if, if you've come through and people have helped you out, know that it's not just because of how smart and intelligent and skilled you are. It's because you're standing on the shoulders of others who, and it sometimes hurts when you stand on their shoulders. So. Yeah. 
guys want to chime in on this? Yeah, I just want to emphasize what Jim said, it, especially in the lens of a lot of times when people talk about privilege, if you guys were here for the, the talk that was done at First Wednesday on it, they deem that it's like a negative statement to them. And just so you know, just get that off the table. I mean, it is not a negative statement. It's a recognition of reality. So you are privileged if you've had an opportunity to get a college degree. You are privileged if you have had an opportunity to get escalated training in any area. You are privileged if you have a home. You are privileged if you have money in your bank account. You are, like those are privileges that if you don't recognize, you'll never steward them, ever. You'll never steward them. You'll never understood what it is to yield that power for the good of anybody else. Um, you never will. You'll presume upon it. You won't steward it. Yeah, I just think as someone speaking on behalf of the majority race, um, that uh, <laughs> the reality of it is what these guys have said is it. But like I, I grew up underprivileged and I am overprivileged now. And I have a responsibility, and though I'm not in the majority race, I am in the dominant culture by the nature of my education, by the nature of all these different things that I probably eat at the same restaurants, listen to the same music, eat at the same restaurants as, <laughs> as many people in this room. And so with that, what that means is I realized that without my buddy Ryan's dad, like I, I mentioned that, and not just Ryan's dad, but the people who I grew up around. My mother moved us from the inner city where the biggest deal in my congregation I grew up in was if someone graduated from high school, like that was a big deal. When we moved to the suburb where I grew up in, I remember graduating from eighth grade and my friends being like, we have eight more years of school yet left because college was assumed. And there was something about, my, my mom didn't pay for me to play sports, somebody else's mom paid for me to play sports. My, my dad didn't take me to football practice. Somebody else's dad took me to football practice. When I got to college, my first semester GPA was a .67. Yeah. Um, so I was right where Jim was. I just played football. <laughs> um, if I were a normal student at ASU, they would have said, you're done, go home. But they got me tutors and so forth and so forth. And so when things begin, and begin to click, I was able to, to care about those things. But I was given opportunities that my brother, my biological brother, was not given I was given opportunities that my biological sister was not given, that my mother was not given, that my father was not, that my nephews and most people in my family were not given. And so I, I, the, the, the way in which you steward it now for me is, it's like that movie that many of you have seen, that pay it forward. It's simple as that. Um, not just do unto others as you would want them to do unto you, but do unto others as you have been done unto. If you've been raised in a really good family, think about helping somebody else experience those things those values that you experience raising a good family. If someone has taught you how to do something, teach somebody else how to do that. The reason why I think discipleship is so big in redemption is so many of us have been discipled. And so many have taken the time, to, people have taken the time to pour in our lives, and so we can't help but do it. And so I think the stewarding of your resources, of your time and of your influence and your privilege is massively important, even when people don't want to receive it, because there are plenty of people who reached out a hand for me that I slapped their hand away. But by, by the grace of God and by these people's desire, they kept reaching their hand out, um, and I was able to take it. And so I'm not a pull yourselves up by the bootstrap type person. Like, I know that I only am a lead pastor and married to my wife, my kids, not because of, like, because I worked hard, but I worked hard with what God allowed in my life through other people. And, and um, that's a privilege, and every privilege, there's a responsibility. So you're all implicated to do it. Everyone that's in that position, you are Jim now is implicated to find other gyms and girl gyms 
and to, to do the same. That's a terrifying image. <laughs> uh, hey, can, can I just go off the cuff and throw this at you, Tyler? How do we as privileged people in Arizona think about and reflect on and maybe even act when it comes to something like Ferguson? Uh, yeah, Tyler. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, to start off, what you don't do is don't presume, oh, the people there should just pull themselves up by the bootstraps. Don't presume that what's in Ferguson, Missouri is the same that you have here because it's not. Um, don't presume that their experience with the police is your experience with the police because it's not. Um, sit. Here's what to do. Sit down and listen. Uh, we're talking about Ferguson. I feel like I could apply this to a whole bunch of different situations right now from if you're in northern Iraq right now and you're going through that whole situation and we have the privilege to not think about it, right? You can go about the majority of your day and until you see it on CNN, you don't think about it. They don't have that privilege. So here's the key thing to do. To do. Sit down and listen with people. With, Listen to people who would more represent that. That's when we're about to get to it in Romans. Associate with the lowly. One of the most powerful parts of the association with the lowly is not for the lowly. It's for the privileged. The greatest benefit is to the privileged, not to the lowly, though the lowly need it. It's, it's mutually beneficial, but we miss all the time. We go into environments like that and we think, we're here to bring you all of our stuff. <laughs> Rather than looking at those opportunities of, we need them. We need that perspective. We need to understand that reality. We need to be there. So the thing I'd say to do is have the courage to sit down with somebody not like you and get really big ears and pray before you go into it. God, don't make me so insecure that all I can be is defensive. Make me secure enough to listen long enough to understand where these people are coming from. And I would say then and only then will you ever understand something like Ferguson in its complexity, because it is complex. And one, Ricardo talked about words. I want to add one word to your vocabulary. If it's not already there, it's the word lament. And as Westerners, this is a word that we don't often use quite a bit. It means to deeply associate your emotions and mourn the brokenness of what's going on. And I often think that as, as Westerners, what we often do is if we can't fix it or to do something directly about it, we just don't think about it because those are our only two options, to ignore it or to try to fix it. But can you feel, give your heart over, weep, mourn in prayer, to the things that are happening in Ferguson, the things that are happening in northern Iraq, the things that are happening all over the world, and furthermore, the things that are happening in our own backyard. It's very interesting that we can identify problems, global problems, and speak in very articulate ways about them. But when you ask what's happening in Arizona, what's happening in your own neighborhood, it becomes much harder because every night we go live in New York through watching a movie or a, a TV show that all takes place in New York. You could probably name more neighborhoods in New York than in your own city because of that. But be fully embodied, fully placed people who know how to, to, to weep and lament even when you can't do something about it. Hmm. I'm going to say this really fast. One of the greatest problems with power is our fear to lose it. 
we're scared to death to lose power, which is idolatry, right? Our God becomes the privileges that we have, and so we presume upon them. And when we think, even if somebody says, you're privileged, we want to defend like crazy because deep down, deep down, beyond anything you can even cognitively think, you don't want to give it up. And hopefully you heard what I was trying to say is in your giving it up is where you find full life. Power is given to be given up, given up for the purpose of furthering it. So deal with that fear. Recognize that fear. It's, it's actually, it's 8 o'clock now. If you have children in child care, we would encourage you um, to, to go hang out with them and invite them back in the room. We're going to just do a few more questions, and we'll go a little bit longer. But if you have children in child care, now would be a time to go find them. How do I identify the power I have? And with limited time, money, and power, how do I decide where to use the power I have? All right. Um, this is, I love this, this topic. Well, first of all, take these sheets that you have, this little power audit. Take it home and reflect on it and work through it. Continue to work through it. But um, I'll tell you something that I do on a frequent basis. Um, are the crepe bar folks still here? Yes. All right, cool. See, he's got the good vision. Yes, I see you. Every Friday morning, every Friday morning, if you guys, if you want to um, join me in this, feel free. But every Friday morning, I'm at Crate Bar, and I do this little exercise I call the Carrot Cake Game. And basically, I take a stack of three-by-five cards with every good blessing I have in my life. So I have on those cards things like bicycle, bedroom, uh, uh, knowledge of the Turkish language, um, front yard, those sorts of things. And then I take a stack of the, the issues of brokenness that I see in the world. And that's a separate stack of three-by-five cards. I shuffle them up, and I pull a random thing. Maybe it's like a bicycle or a spare bedroom. And then a problem that would be like violence at ASU or or poverty, or something like that. And I try to brainstorm different ways that I could use that one resource to address that one need. Now, what does that do? What it does is the, the issue isn't how much power do we have and do we know we have it. You know you have it because you use it constantly for your own benefit. The challenge we have is to figure out how we can intentionally employ that for the sake of another and to serve others. So doing an exercise like that strengthens our creativity and our ability to think about others. And I believe me, creativity is not something that just some people have. It's something every one of us have, and we can work it out as a muscle. But the reality is it's all about taking intentional time and t thinking about your stuff, all the benefits you have, and thinking about it as how can I love others and serve others with it and being as creative and out of the box as you possibly can, but also being faithful to something when you put your hand to it. So whoever asked that question, you guys should be on at Friday at the Crate Bar with Jim. I, hey, I'm the one who asked that question. Buy me breakfast. If you come up with a good idea, I'll buy you coffee. Yeah. And they have great coffee there. <laughs> My boys um, that walked in that are down there, we running the crepe bar on Friday mornings a lot, and they've been playing it with Jim, and we've said, we need to figure out a way so you guys can join us in this creativity, how to make this a full-blown game that we could 
go mass throughout redemption and hopefully see it go further of what a game that would be for people to see what I have and how it can be used to meet the needs of our cities and our world. Just how often do we daydream about others? All of our daydreams are about ourselves. But what if we could be um, about our own visions of grandeur? Um, Or, you know, um, but what if instead of visions of grandeur and of things that would be beneficial for us, what if we just daydreamed about what it would be like for Adam over here to flourish and to to have a wonderful life and, and for him to do well or for for Mike or for Sarah. Um, I think that would be pretty cool. If we had Jenny Mullins up here also, we could have asked that question and how they've taken a need they have in their family and all that they've learned with Eliana and how they very specifically use that with other families going through the same system and going through the same experience with their children. Um, They do that very well. So there's a quote, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Can you comment on this? How does the gospel redeem our power? Nietzsche? Lord, a- Lord Acton. Oh, the, oh, yeah, Lord Acton. Yeah. yeah. You got this. <laughs> no, go ahead. Yeah, no. Go ahead. Um, power can corrupt, and absolute power can uh, corrupt absolutely. But it doesn't have to. Power, there is a way, we often think of power as a zero-sum game. That if I have nine power units and I give away three, that now I have six power units. But the reality is, in the giving of power, it doesn't diminish any the power that I have. Um, Andy Crouch, who wrote a book, um, it's actually for sale back there, it's really good. One of the examples he gives is the example of a musician. Um, if, if, if a musician were to give lessons to someone else and teach them how to play guitar or violin or something like that, there is a transference of the knowledge and skill, but it doesn't diminish the person who's, who's doing the, the lessons, who's doing the training. And that is a biblical understanding of power. The, the, we operate under uh, an understanding of power that's more framed by Nietzsche, who would say that all of life is a power grab. There's only so much power. All the, all, the only associations that we have one another are just these temporary associations so we can pull more power from others. Um, and then we'll eventually break up so we can pull more power for ourselves. But the reality is that's not a biblical concept. It's, power isn't a zero-sum game. In the giving of it, it actually increases yourself. Power does not corrupt. Sin corrupts. Yeah. Amen. So just understand that. Power does not corrupt. Sin corrupts power. Mm. And sin at its core is self-absorption, making it about me as opposed to righteousness being about the good of other people. So That's good. I don't agree with Lord Acton. We're going we're gonna to close with that right there. Uh, Tyler's got it. I, I, this is a really, really good thing. I know there are people in this room that are not Christians, not self-professing Christians. So let me talk to those of you who are, just to say this. Your knowledge, personal knowledge, and experience of Jesus is privilege and is power that Jesus himself calls you to steward. Hmm. And one of the ways I want to say right now, you better display and talk about him because he's that glorious. And he's the whole reason we're talking about 
power the way we're talking about power is because we view him as Lord. And the only way we view him as Lord is because he is a savior who we've seen. And that's a privilege to those of us who've experienced that to display it to other people. That's really good. Let, Thanks. let, let me uh, close our night in prayer. Father, we, um, we thank you for the beautiful ways that you have displayed your power in creation. God, when we see, uh, when we see that the way the world works, we see the way that uh, things like photosynthesis and the beauty of mountains and trees and plants and the dill plant. Thank you, God, for the dill plant. We see your power on display, but we see it, we see it most significantly in the beautiful face of Jesus who walked among us, who washed feet, who poured himself out and died for us. Would you, God, increase our affection for him and in our affection for him, make us like him in the way that we steward power. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you, everyone.